Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm uh, Jerry McGinn, the Executive Director for the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University. It's my pleasure to welcome you here for today's webinar on uh, increasing speed and flexibility in Department of Defense budgeting, going from ideas to implementation. We're pleased to uh, co have our co-sponsors for this uh, being the Wharton Aerospace and Alan Chang, the co-founder, will be speaking later to you all. I'm just going to welcome everyone to this event. As many of you all know, the Secretary McNamara that came from Ford in 1961, where he was the president, he brought the best of industrial planning to the Department of Defense and totally changed how we do the planning, programming, and budgeting in the Department of Defense, moving from organizational budgets to program budgets. And that venerable system is what we use today. Uh, that has great strengths. It's, it has clear reporting, clear oversight mechanisms, and clear blood, budget preparation planning processes. However, there's been some challenges with it as the threats uh, of a change in facing us today. And that's been a, a big focus of a testimony of, of Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO, former Deputy Secretary of Work in the last several weeks before the HASC and the SAS. So we're very excited to have you all today for this conversation. Uh, we're going to have two panels. The first panel will be a good summation of the actual ideas that have been put forward on how to do budgeting differently. We're pleased to have my newly elevated senior fellow, Eric Lofgren, who actually started this ball rolling with a paper he did last year for the Acquisition Research Symposium at the Noble Postgraduate School that we've done as a white paper and done a previous event on. And he's got a great panelist, which I'll let him introduce. And then I will follow with a panel of uh, grizzled veterans of the Hill and the DOD budget process. And how could this actually be effective, put into effect in a way which will allow the system to adapt and be effective going forward? So without further ado, uh, I'll pass it over to Eric. Great. Thanks, Jerry. So I want to just start out here with a video introducing the three reports. And we have contributors from those three reports here with us today. And then we'll get right into the discussion. We've had three excellent reports addressing the Pentagon's resourcing process come out all within a couple weeks of each other. We're fortunate to have representatives from each of the reports here with us today. Let's start with a quick overview of Competing in Time by Dan Pat and Bill Greenwald. The authors motivate us by showing how cycle times for the development of military aircraft has dramatically increased since the 1960s. And the same thing is going on in missiles as in aircraft, and the same story for ships. Meanwhile, in the commercial sector, time from incorporation to an operational product remains under five years. In the 1960s and before, defense systems were developed in roughly five years. Decision time today is much longer. In the best case, using middle tier and other transactions, cycle time is seven years. For business as usual, cycle time is anywhere from nine to 26 years. The problem is that China is following rapid and iterative development strategies akin to the commercial sector. The U.S. used to use development strategies in a similar way, as exemplified by the B, which had rapid 
early design iterations, evolving performance, and quick production sequences. The authors point to the planning, programming, budgeting, execution process as a key factor. They write, to address lengthy decision timelines that fundamentally limit adaptability, the PBBE must be revisited. Put simply, we need a more flexible programming and budgeting model that prioritizes delivery of operational capability and permits hedging and learning. The key concept is that of a portfolio, which takes similar program line items and groups them together. The authors discuss logical methods for grouping elements. First, by capability area, like ships or aircraft. Second, by organization, like program executive offices. And third, by mission area, like ensuring freedom of navigation in the Taiwan Straits. The authors don't see a one-size-fits-all answer and view the mission area budgeting as perhaps a combatant command responsibility to address the seams left behind by capability, organizational, and other types of portfolio budget. Let's now take a look at the final report of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. While the report is wide-ranging, it touches on a number of important aspects of the budget process. The report recommends the Secretary of Defense establish a dedicated AI fund as a pilot under the management of USD R&E of about $200 million. It also recommends that the DEPSEC-DEF accelerate efforts to implement portfolio management to requirements and budget, including a test pilot for joint capability areas such as command and control, and even seeks to align those portfolios with a program executive office or other organizational entity. But that's not it. The report asked the DEPSEC-DEF to propose another pilot to test mission-focused budgeting and appropriations in coordination with the combatant commands that considers more flexible funding mechanisms and new metrics for oversight. It also supports the continuation of Budget Activity 8 for software and digital technologies. Here's Chairman of the NSCAI, Eric Schmidt's testimony to the Senate Armed Services Committee in February 2021. Although we've had 50 years of acquisition reform, we have not meaningfully changed the PBBE process developed in the 1960s. Congress and the Defense Department need to work together to immediately authorize and fund pilots and set the stage for more sweeping reform. There's a number of problems with it. One is, has to do with its design cycle. If there's something called the POM or program of record, there is a two-year planning cycle ahead of actually approving anything. So if you want to do something new, you have to plan it, and then it starts two years from the time you get, because that's when you get the money for it. We have to come together also to reform the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process. Let's now take a look at MITRE's 5x5 report, authored by Matt McGregor, Dan Ward, and Pete Modigliani. The authors present five disciplines and five strategic initiatives, and two of the initiatives are most relevant to our discussion. To introduce portfolio management, authors start with a graphic from the FY21 budget request that presents strategic capabilities. They find it a good starting point for portfolios. They show how the strategic capability budgets shown on the interior can be broken down into roughly 40 mission area portfolios. Let's dig deeper into the aircraft set of capabilities. The authors show that the basic elements of the aircraft portfolios correspond to major organizational units like 
program executive offices. Each mission area portfolio, like Air Force Combat Aircraft, would be owned by an organization like PEO Fighters and Advanced Aircraft, which currently manages a set of programs. The PEO would have flexibility to reallocate funds without congressional prior approval, but will still provide regular updates on movements. Budgets and execution will still be tracked at the program budget activity code level, providing insight to stakeholders and oversight. To summarize, the authors recommend that we align DOD and Congress on military strategy, deliver capabilities using portfolio budgeting, increase flexibility to shift resources between efforts, avoid budget lock-in mechanisms such as new starts and full funding requirements, improve oversight by focusing on value rather than acquisition program baselines, use budget activity eight to remove arbitrary investment and expense categories for software efforts, and reduce process by moving to biennial budget cycles. For more background on PBBE and budget reform, visit acquisitiontalk.com slash budget reform. Okay. Thanks for entertaining that video that just introduced our three uh, panelists. Again, we're just going to jump right into the discussion. The outline here is really, we're going to first talk about the structure of the budget, then interoperability in the joint force. And then finally, criteria for oversight. I want to start with you, Dan, and talk about the structure of the budget itself, because you talk a lot about time and the time penalty of the PBBE. But a lot of that is, of course, a consequence of the structure of the budget and its fixation on weapons line items. So first, can you talk about that dynamic? And then under what logic do you actually think that budget line items should be consolidated? Thanks, Eric. And what a great question. But first, thanks for having me. And what an honor to be up here with you, Eric and, and Courtney. And admire all of your work and, and certainly encourage everyone to, to, to look through that. There's a lot of rich information and perspectives there. And to answer that question, I think I would probably step back first and say, what's our objective? And I think there's two key objectives that we have, right? We have this objective of uh, providing for the common defense, right? The, the words of the Constitution. And, and we also have this responsibility of, well, making responsible use of taxpayer funds. And, and those, those are the things that we're after here. And everything else should be serving that. And, and to get to your question, what should it look like? Let's talk a little bit about what it is today. As we know, we primarily pursue military capability through developing weapon systems. And we group those weapon systems under program elements and for the management associated with that. And we tend to also conduct oversight there. And you can conduct a lot of useful oversight in that, right? It, is my program system progressing on time? Are things going as I expected them to, to, to do? This is the design intent of PPBE. But the net effect of that is it's pushing this huge decision burden into, should I get started with that? It makes it very high friction. It makes it a lot of effort to decide, is it really worthwhile to start something new? So if I zoom back out to those objectives, right, providing for the common defense, if I expect that the means of providing for that defense to be changing, for example, because technology is changing or because the geopolitical situation is changing, then it's quite possible that my emphasis on supporting a responsible use of taxpayer funds and this model is getting in the way. So to your question, what's the right building block? I think the right building blocks of the budget structure need to be able to support smart decisions about reinvestment reallocation. So it isn't just 
this weapon system that we started, is this going according to schedule? We ask those questions regularly now. Is this still the right weapon system? Between a set of different options, some of which are weapon systems and some might not be weapon systems, might be other forms of military capability, how should we balance that investment and how do they work together? I think the, the right structure, the portfolio approaches that we talked about, Matt and in his report, he struck out, I think is a perfectly reasonable approach to, to structuring the budget, right? Those are what I would call capability portfolios. You take similar things and you put them in together in portfolios and you allow an organization to reallocate between those similar things. I do want to point out that whatever basic building block structure you have, you will always end up with seams. And those seams will be points of aggravation. For example, I still have, if, if I have capability portfolios around, around aircraft and around other systems, I still care about electronic warfare, right? Should electronic warfare be its own thing? Should we split up across those? There's no obvious answer. And because of that, I actually think that you want a couple different mechanisms that might be able to overlap. So I'll pause here. Yeah, definitely. And back in the day when you used to have bureaus that were like the Bureau of Engineering, and they would be like this multifunctional support to weapon systems platforms. And so you had this kind of matrix approach back then. But actually, I want to move on to Courtney because AIML actually seems like one of these things that's at the seams, but also everywhere. It's not like it's potentially a single objective in its own kind of platform, though maybe it is. But I was just interested to see that in your report, when you were talking about capability areas to pilot portfolios, you didn't say AIML. You did say, we'll have a bridge fund for AI. But when you're talking about the portfolios, you actually brought up command and control. So can you talk a little bit about that decision process of AI and whether it should be its own portfolio or how it actually works across the structure? Yeah, thanks, Eric. Well, let me just say that it's a pleasure to to be here with all of you. I'm grateful for the opportunity and, and really fantastic to, to be here with Dan and Matt, who were uh, just phenomenal partners as the commission finished its report. So so again, just grateful to be with all of you. It, it, it's a really good question. I think how we approach this from the commission's perspective is that AI will be a ubiquitous and cross-cutting technology. If you look at what the commission actually put forward as the most aggressive recommendation for the Department of Defense, it's to lay those foundations for integration of AI technologies by 2025. And that's integration of AI technologies across all mission areas right, from the back office all the way to the tactical edge. And so what that means is that AI is going to be a cross-cutting enabling technology. And I think what we've seen in that each of these reports highlights is that the program-centric nature of the budget as it is today presents a real obstacle for, for funding and getting resources to those cross-cutting technologies. In our final report, what we make clear is that we think the program-centric nature of the budget really causes costly and redundant full-stack development. We want to get away from that as an enterprise. As I said, it prevents that funding of cross-cutting enablers like AI, like the building blocks of AI, like platform services, right? Cloud compute, data storage infrastructure. We think that jointness and in particular, I think the seamless flow of data between systems and platforms and composability is really going to be critical in maintaining the advantage in AI warfare. And so how we really thought about the structure of the budget is how do we respond with the ability to out-innovate and outpace 
the adversary. So along that thinking, we approached our recommendations around portfolio management, that capability area C2 that you mentioned through that lens of jointness and try to balance it against the need for some level of predictability just in terms of what we're investing in. We know we're going to have to make investments in C2, right? And so that's how we landed on joint capability areas is organizing constant. But I think to Dan's point about, about seams, some of the things that are most positive about this organizing construct are also going to be the most challenging. We use C2 as an example because it's fairly well contained within existing PEOs, but the reality is that a lot of these will span different services, different organizations, different agencies, and it may require a different organization to actually manage them. And so what we intended to do here is really provide a bold recommendation to get the department and get the Congress coming together to think about what needs to occur. Great. So I want to move on to Matt, and we have a question here from Robert Bradford, and he asks, what would be the objective of each portfolio? Is it capability provided to the force? How do we measure whether decision about capabilities are smart? So you had a very, you and your team had a very specific kind of structure that you actually put out, which was much more detailed than the other. So how did you get there? And then how would you think about the objective of the portfolios and measuring decision-making in that construct? Yes, thanks, Eric. And also great to be on the panel with uh, Courtney and Dan and yourself, Eric. One of the things, though, is that you'll see in our recommendations in the paper is that we don't pretend to have all the answers. So I think there are a lot of ways to tackle this. And I think a budget reform commission, where you bring a lot of these stakeholders together, you look at how do you pull AI ML in there? How do you maybe you know close some of the seams uh, that you might have? So I think there's a lot of smart ways of doing this. I think we settled on capabilities Primarily because from my perspective, when we have the discussion with the Hill, you can get deep down into the programmatics and start talking about, I'm going to put this EW pod on this aircraft and how many of those EW pods am I going to put on? And I think that conversation needs to be brought up five or six levels. So that was part of the discussion is let's agree at the, with the Hill, with the different concerned committees on the strategic capabilities that the DOD needs to provide. And if we can get agreement there, then I think there's an inherent level of flexibility for the department to say, here's how I'm going to provide those strategic capabilities and to have more flexibility to do that. Yeah, so getting to the question, if I understand the, the question correctly, how to do that smart and how would it, how does it relate to the field? Yes, I would, I would say that if you have the example that you use, like combat aircraft if, or unmanned, say the unmanned piece of the combat aircraft. So if we're going after a skyboard and some of those things, and we say, this is one of the efforts that we are getting after to provide that strategic unmanned combat aircraft capability, then we should be judged on how quickly we get that capability met. So I think this goes to maybe a future question you can have on oversight, but it needs to be the value that effort is providing to the warfighter. And I think you have to make that connection. And I think that's one of the things that we have not done a great job with is APBs. We're focusing so much on these baselines and cost estimates and all this kind of bureaucracy behind the scenes that we often lose sight of how much, how much actually was delivered to the warfighter. Was that what the warfighter wanted? Was it useful? So I would say the strategic capability thing, if we have the flexibility that we're talking about in the paper, I think that gives DOD a lot of room to, to maneuver and pull in commercial technology and ultimately hopefully deliver you know, value to the warfighter rapidly. Yeah, it's interesting what you said there. And I want to go right back to you and think about, and Dan brought this subject up that usually it seems like all the value questions are in the requirement stage, they're way up front. And it's okay, once we have requirements that go through the Pentagon gauntlet, like what emerges on the other side, we assume is like the proper value statement given its cost outlays and that decision-making is there. And then 
all we need to do is just measure back to that, right? Like cost growth and schedule growth to that plan is the ideal of what value is. And the closer you are to hitting the plan, then the more value is being generated. But in this portfolio construct, if it's not execution to a plan, then what is it? Right. I think you have to have a plan. And this is, we do not intend to say that you should start a program with just pull stuff together and slap it together. That is, there needs to be discipline, rigor in this process. And I think if you do engineering right, you're going to have that rigor. But I think the thing that we pretend with the way that we do programs today is that we pretend as if there's requirements are the value that the, that the user needs when that platform is delivered. And right, that is just not a static thing that I think Dan brought the point up about. There is change happening all the time. So it's dynamic. And so, yeah, value, what value might be one year might not be the next because the threat changes, you know, significantly. And so oh, that aircraft was great for that mission or for that threat. The Chinese just invented a brand new radar or brand new something. And, and now we, we need something else to counter that. So I think the value proposition is also going to change. And that's where the flexibility, I think, comes into play. And why that idea of the requirements being established 10 years before, and then did you satisfy those requirements? And if you did, then that's the end of the value statement. Like you've done your job and you can go home now. Matt, I want to just stick with you for a second, because when I look at your budget structure, you on the inside, you had these capability areas. And then on the outside, you had each service's PEO that is connected with that capability. But in reality... Is the budget, is it actually flipped because ultimately it's going to come from like an army appropriation and then down to something? So what does that actually look like? Yeah, I struggle with that too. And I also, I've always liked your ideas on organizational budgeting because I believe the PEOs are the fundamental executors at the connectors between the strategy and the actual delivery, the, the execution of the program. So I love the PEOs as being the arbiters of a lot of that and having the control at their level. But at the same time, yes, we do have these appropriations. So you're going to have to break it down to that level. And I think to Dan's point about the seams, I think the appropriations are going to create some seams. I think the some of the capabilities are going to cross multiple PEOs. So there's going to be some cross stuff there that's going to have to be worked out. So that's where I say, I don't think we have all the answers there. I think you're going to have to, going to, have to be really smart about how we establish those capabilities. And I'm hoping that when we start a commission, there'll be a lot of smart ideas that maybe, you know, people will say, yeah, you guys are, you guys were wrong in this. It should actually be this way. And we'll go, oh, great. That's, yeah, that's exactly what we wanted to, to get input on. Yes. Yeah, so I think you can start with what we have there as the, the capabilities. They're going to be broken down at the, the, the army RDT and E, the army procurement. It's going to be broken down on all those appropriations until that fundamentally changes. But I think just that first step would be a fundamental, fundamental shift, but maybe not the final answer. Great. So Courtney, I wanted to ask about that kind of difference between the bridge fund and then your like pilots for prototypes and what kind of problems are each of those trying to solve and in what kind of time frame? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the commission really approached our recommendations around PPP reform in general over two real time horizons. So the first is we understand, I think we've broad consensus, at least among this group, but the, I think the nature of the conversation going on right now would say that the broader audience agrees that there's some challenges here. But in the near term, what can we do to accelerate capability delivery relative to the budget? And in particular, through our AI lens, we were very concerned about how do we accelerate the delivery of AI-enabled technologies and capability. And so in the near term, what we've proposed is this idea of a dedicated AI fund that would, as you said, Eric, function as really a bridge. Sometimes you hear these called scaling funds, but the idea is really to ensure that we don't have promising AI technology that is either developed out in the DOD labs, maybe it's 
brought in through a SIBR and STR program that either doesn't have a requirement on the other end. So it's a pure tech push type situation and we don't have a requirement pulling for it. Or frankly, the money's just not available because of the programming cycle. We have to have the ability as an enterprise to make bigger bets on some of these technology areas that we know are going to generate or could generate game-changing operational capability. And so that was really where the idea for, for this bridge fund came in. And that's particularly why we said that we would like to see this stood up under R&E as the department's chief technology officer. Really, it is within their purview and part of the original congressional vision for them to make these bigger bets on technology areas and buy down some of that risk for the service. So that's a very concrete near-term step we would like to see taken. But I, I think I'd be remiss if I said, if I didn't say that the commission certainly does not see a bridge fund as a panacea. It's not a silver bullet when it comes to budget reform and it's really a near-term solution. Over the longer term, I think exactly what Matt was just saying, we have to get to some of these pilots around portfolio management. And that really should be in the next year to two years. Let's get some data from those, see what works. We need to get to a place from an oversight perspective with Congress where we're sharing the right information, we're beginning to adjust metrics that are getting a little bit closer to measuring value, and we're starting to build trust there in a way that we can nudge towards the bigger muscle movements like mission funding that that Dan and Bill talk about in their paper. Yeah, so Dan, Courtney brought up the idea of these kind of new sets of metrics that relay value. So we're rethinking that kind of conversation with oversight and with Congress about what constitutes success in gaining that trust. So can you get a little bit into if it's not cost growth to APB, or that's one metric now in our bag, what does that bag look like? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a good question. It's, it's a tough question. I, I do think that PPB was born in, in a simpler time. And if we look at this neglected category of the budget, these major force programs, which if you read the NDA report, right, they talk about it, it's a useless category that provides no analytic value. And that's their take on it. I think that was a, that was a view of what are our big picture challenges. If we zoom out and say, what, what, does, what do the American people care about? What we care about is do we have a solid national security enterprise? Are we postured for the common defense in the face of our current threats? That's the question that we should be focused on. And this these are hard questions, right? These are questions of how do we avoid war? How do we avoid the horrors of war? And how can we maintain a strong security? And many of these then become these questions of, well, are we able to provided conventional deterrent effects to say, stop a fait accompli and stop to roll back in time. But what could you have done to stop Russia from annexing part of the Ukraine? Well, how are you able to do that? That is an operational question that, you know, fortunately so much of congressional oversight is focused on program, the equivalent of these APB questions and not on these larger geopolitical questions, which is arguably a place where we want the vibrant debate, which gets between our values, our investments, our institutional structure. I do believe that you can look at these larger operational strategic challenges as a lens for thinking about value. There's something that we want to do. We want to stop this invasion and prevent a fait accompli. What are our means of doing that? Abs you know, tactical aircraft have something to do with that. Absolutely. That's a part of your mechanism. But it's more than that, right? Especially in the information age. A lot of it's what about your information processing enterprise? Am I able to pull together the ISR picture that gives me indications and warning? This is a question that has to do with AI and it has to do with data fusion and it has to do with connectivity and it has to do with networks. 
And whose problem is that today? It's nobody's problem. It's everyone's problem and it's no one's problem. And those lenses of those operational talents, I do think you can start to, to look at what is the relative value of these pieces? So that's not a building block structure of the budget because we would expect these to change and evolve. We expect to make progress on operational challenges, but I think it's a useful way to think about oversight and you can think about metrics for that. How do you support that? You have to do use tools like analysis and war games, but we're doing those already. And we should do more of them because this is about how we're prepared for defense and deterrence. So that's that's a one view of an alternative set of metrics, which could complement the portfolio of, of measures that we have to, to look at value. Yeah, I always find it uh, interesting that one of the logic and the background of the PBBE was to create this kind of joint force structure. So I have these logical elements, I can remove duplication overlap, and I can optimize that in a, a linear programming way. But then the fixation on each weapon system leads to these stovepipes and it, you like optimize that stovepipe and then it kind of moves independent of the rest. And now we have all these interoperability problems. So like the construct was, I can look at these programs and then from the top pretty well think about how they all fit together. But if we move to portfolios, then how do we reach the joint force interoperability and where we want to be? And I'll just say, not all discipline has to come through the budget, but we still need to have that discipline somewhere. I'll stick with uh, Dan Pat for now. Can you uh, yeah. follow up? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I think let's get back to the, the structure of the budget for a minute. There's three themes in the budget, right? The first theme is in the planning process, the, the two years that it takes to, to build a plan for the future years. That window of time is a theme. The second window, the, excuse me, the second theme is between program elements. And really when we say program elements, that boils up to ultimately services because money is appropriated to services. And then finally, the third theme is the appropriations categories, right? It's the colors of money. Those three themes are the things that get aggravated by various activities, right? When people complain about the budgeting process, they're talking about one or more of those themes. Any system will have themes and that this is the nature of the way things evolve. You develop more capability within your lane and then you develop less capability across the seam, your adversaries attack your seams. So it's natural that, that you run into these kinds of problems. So specifically to get that question, let's look at these joint, like what would be the most aggravated problem that you could possibly have? It would be some joint problem. It, it would be go across colors of money. So you might be mixing both development and sustainment and operations. And it would probably something where I need a fast time cycle, right? Actually, those are a lot of our information technology problems in the joint context. Inter system interoperability. This isn't a thing where I can go back and I can change the software on M1 Abrams and add a data link, which is going to take 10 years because I got to get a new requirement and new funding and, and push that all the way through. This is about here and now. What is the thing that I can do to change tomorrow? It aggravates all three seams of the budget. And, and that is arguably our, our biggest challenge. I think that there's a role for the construct of something like a, a mission manager, which is, which is a role which could cape. And the service budget focuses a lot on this big picture force design about what are the weapon systems that will come down the pike in seven to 10 years. But there's this, what about the gap? In between that? What about this faster time cycle? What about the capability for the combatant commands tomorrow? That's probably our biggest gap. So one means of getting a more 
joint force is to create uh, mission managers within some existing organization or, or within a COCOM or within, you know, SCO, for example, and, and allot them an, an amount of funding not to replicate programs, not to create a new program, not to compete with the services, but to bring things together around that time frame. That's one means that you might be able to use the budgetary structure and an appropriation around, around that idea to, to help drive to, to that outcome. I think the mission element as tacking the seams left over and actually bringing these elements back together and, and ensuring interoperability is an interesting uh, concept. I think back in the past, we used to have research and development boards and munition boards and the leaders of organizations would simultaneously sit on this board and they would discuss and know what each other are doing and make decisions in that way. Matt, I've talked with you about this quite a bit. I'd like to get you and you push back on, on the kind of construct of like a boarded committee structure. So I'd just like you to riff on that. And what do you think about the mission elements in, in kind of concert with the, the capability portfolios? Yeah, I, I thought that was a really intriguing part of uh, Dan and Bill's paper actually on, was the mission piece. And I like it as a perspective for metrics, especially in terms of, okay, you're developing all these capabilities, going back to the capability portfolios, you're developing all these capabilities and that's good. You're meeting the intent of all the things you said you would do, but you do need to make them work together. And so I think this is where like ABMS with some of the on-ramps that they're doing is they're, they're testing. We have these capabilities. How do we make them work together to do XX? And so I really like I don't know how, I don't know how the mission budgeting, I, I haven't been able to get my head quite around how you would budget for those things, given that they might span multiple missions, capabilities to span multiple missions, but I love it as a metric for, okay, we have a Pacific mission, we have XX as in the Pacific, we have XXX in the Atlantic, XXX in the Arctic. Can you do those with the capabilities that you have developed? And if not, what things are you not able to do? Because that's what we need to get after. So I think in terms of the, in terms of the mission portfolios, I like that. Going back to the boards, I think you, you could probably get some value out of it. I just am always worried about any kind of thing that is at a high level that has multiple levels between it and the execution executors of the program or the executors of the capability. I just always worry about that because that oftentimes creates drag. And so time is one of those things that we need to give back to the program managers. And this is where I think the budget process steals a lot of time and a lot of probably capability delivery. I think you can almost translate it. So I'm skeptical of the boards just because of that, but, but I would support any structure that if we can get more flexibility into the department and then eventually push that down to the program managers, I think that would be uh, value-added. Yeah, I'll just uh, note that hopefully there's not the time penalty just because the way that they had it was the members of the boards were actually like a program manager and they would have several levels. And it anyway, I want to move off of that point and, and go to Courtney here. I'd just like you to talk a little bit about, you guys had a, a bunch of stuff in your report that was on like the technical workforce and bringing that back in house. And how important is that kind of shift in focus on the workforce? If we're thinking about portfolios, it's potentially not correct to just think that we can roll it out to everybody and everyone in the departments on like the kind of the same page. So how do you think about piloting that in concert with having the right kinds of people and processes in place so that they can own the technical baseline and actually execute well on that? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think two main things here. One, we are, I think, certainly of the, the position as a commission that there has to be a sufficient amount of digital literacy across the force and within our, our civilian workforce. And we don't achieve that by outsourcing everything. That is not to say that the commission is in favor of bringing everything in-house, right? We will need 
to compete in AI-enabled warfare, we will need partnerships with both traditional and non-traditional defense suppliers and the expertise they bring to the table. But what is critical, and one of the things that we touch on in the report, is ensuring that the right technical talent is in the right place. And one of the places we assess the right place to be is at the combatant command headquarters and forward deployed with operational units from those combatant command headquarters. And to come back to some of Dan's points on mission funding, the reason you see that show up in the commission's report as well is because when we were thinking about, okay, how do we accelerate adoption of AI-enabled technologies? One, it's about getting those right people in the right place. And so when you have technologists at the combatant command sitting side by side with operators, you're able to develop solutions, even if you're just ideating on them much more quickly. We need an ability to get after those solutions, both in terms of the technical infrastructure to actually do the development, but also that we have the funding in place to do that development. And that's going to require more flexible acquisition program baselines, right? It's going to require the funding construct that allows continuous iterative development that is not bound by time or color of money. And so that's really how we landed on mission funding within our report, as well as how else are you going to get the capability you need downrange at the speed you need. Yeah, one thing I want to stick with you and ask about, we've been hearing a little bit about the challenges of funding these enterprise tools like Cloud One and Platform One, but then like for AI, you guys and in, in, in the Jake, they have the joint common foundations. So can you just talk a little bit about what are those challenges of securing funding in the current construct and how portfolio budgets or a different type of structure would help get these kinds of enterprise tools off the ground and help each of the each of the different organizations and different programs leverage that rather than reinventing the whole tech stack every single time. Yeah, so I think any muscle movement we make that shifts us more to a, a position where we're focused on inputs rather so overly focused on outputs is going to help us get at at some of those horizontal capabilities. And so that might be portfolio management type constructs with capability areas, you would be able to fund infrastructure for your digital technology, for example, within that command and control portfolio that we put forward in our report. But additionally, you would also have this ability with mission funding. It would just be an enduring requirement that you need to fund. And I think what's challenging about the, the type of technical infrastructure that, that Platform One represents that the Joint Common Foundation will represent with the Jake as they continue that development. And additionally, this digital ecosystem, which builds upon both the JCF and the Platform One as pathfinders that the commission puts forward in our final report, is that we're not going to be able to determine a full lifecycle cost for these things. They're going to be comprised of different service layers that need to be consumable and you should only have to pay for what you're using. And so we're very, really rapidly moving towards a model where the entire department is going to have to embrace some sort of consumption-based solution for pricing technical infrastructure. And so that's something we're going to have to contend with as well. Well, that's a, I feel like the consumption-based solutions, which came out in the FY22 or the 21 NDAA, that's a whole nother topic. And that's, I think it would be great to see that kind of moving forward. I have a question here from Joe Letty. And he's asking about the United States Space Force, which last year in May, they quickly came out with a report and their number one uh, recommendation was consolidation of budget line items into these portfolios. And then it was quickly retracted. (laughs) We know that 
I think those are those discussions are still behind closed doors. I don't know if anybody has any kind of information, but I guess if the, the Space Force came out and didn't really take oversight's equity and their interests into account, what should like that kind of like those sub bullets have been under like we want budget line item consolidation that would have said, hey, we're really going to still give you insight, still give you visibility. What are those information systems and what are the important streams of information that Congress and oversight really needs to make decisions on whether something starts or whether to kill something or where do they come in that system? And Dan, would you like to take that long-winded question? Yeah, there's there's a lot to that. I guess the first thing I'll start with is, is empathy for, for the appropriators, right? They have this really important role, right? That this president's budget, it's actually the president's budget request and to the appropriators who create the budget and, and assign that. And the question of, but you know, the structure of that budget request sure has a lot to do with how they think about it. If you were to, to revisit that, I think revisiting a lot of the basic mechanisms about what does the budget justification look like? What does interim reporting look like? What do the briefs that accompany that look like? For sure, a, a lot of the real progress gets made because it happens because of great relationships with people. But if you think about this, you know, we're, we're a society that, that prizes free-flowing information. You know, why is it that we have these clumsy paper reporting systems for this, right? It's because of tradition. It's because this is the way we've done this for a long time. There's a lot that we, I think, there's a lot of potential both within the department and across there to, to modernize how we do reporting. To, to get back to your question about what is the structure, I think there's a couple of pieces. If we're going to change the structure of the budget, we need to have a strong set of objectives. What is it that we're trying to achieve? And I think these things that we've been talking about, which is agility, responsibility of a program, not just to the performance of the program, but it's still the right program, which is why rolling up to some sort of portfolio measure looks like the right thing. Those are important questions. And then you need to be able to have the oversight conversations around that. This point that Matt made and Eric, you've made before, which is about there's an organization which gets this budget line, and then they're responsible for the outcomes of that, of that budget line. That, the ownership, you, you do need most of the building blocks of the budget, I think, to align the funds with the people who are going to own the outcomes of the funds. I, I do think there's a lot of logic around that. We talked about there still may be some seams about joint force integration. But so I think if the Space Force had a structure, I think proposing what radical transparency of their progress, of their expenditures, of their results looks should go along with uh, a structure where, yeah, it's really logically oriented, but recognizing there may be some diversity in that logic about various parts of their enterprise. Yeah, I want to go over to Matt. And we've talked about this a lot. When I look at the Space Force, it's organizations now are like, they reorganized the SMC 2.0. So they have the development core, that production core, enterprise core. So they're recognizing that enterprise interoperability requirement. But that means like a program like GPS, for example, will flow through all three of those potentially. So if you have a portfolio based on like development core or production core, then everyone's responsible for every program as well. And we get into this mini to mini relationship between who owns a budget and then who's executing on that. That could potentially draw in some issues in terms of just having to put that decision level one layer higher as to who adjudicates what and where the budget goes in terms of trade-offs and flexibility. So can you just talk about what is your view in the Space Force construct of how would you, how would those portfolios might look? I think there's different ways that you could probably tackle it. I'm not sure SMC 
you know, completely solved it, but they also don't benefit from having the portfolio. If they had a portfolio, yes, there would probably need to be some coordination across it because if you're providing enterprise services, that's going to affect a multiple space system. And this kind of goes to Courtney's point about the infrastructure piece is you're, I think you're always going to have an organization that is responsible for the infrastructure, whether that is the, the people that own the capability or some separate entity. I, I, I think we've tried the separate entity, so maybe it needs to be the people that own the capability, but there's going to be cross, there's going to be cross-cutting things that have to be addressed. And so I don't think you'll ever get to a point unless you just have one space PEO, which I think is probably too much. So you're going to have some breakdown of that. And there's going to be cross-cutting things. I think this goes to the relationship piece about try to get as much of the accountability into the one PEO. So I think that should always be the goal. You should have that PEO be accountable for the maximum amount of things that can fit within that capability portfolio. But the cross-cutting things, there's going to have to be relationships and it may have to be elevated at times. And I think that can still be an efficient process. I don't think it has to be uh, burdensome, but the, yeah, the goal should be to right now they're dealing with many PEs and having to cross cut them. So, you know, so it's like magnified problem. Now I think we could get it down to a more manageable level. So I want to take a question for any of you guys who want to jump on it. This is from Matthew Murphy. What's the proposed offset in the political dimension for the perception that Congress is actually going to lose political power? So if the Congress or if the DOD gets portfolios, Congress is going to lose some oversight. It's going to lose some insight. Where's the gift? And what does that look like? Anyone? Dan? Yeah, Courtney? sure. Look, I, I, fundamentally, the power of the purse is Congress's power. And, and I think this question really just gets at asking ourselves collectively as a nation, what are the questions that we care more about? Are the questions we care more about program progress and, and whether your rate of expenditure of funds is the right thing? I think that in this moment in time, those aren't, right? So I think it's flipping the picture and saying, yeah, what is the relative importance of this capability portfolio or that capability portfolio? What is the relative importance of investing in the foundational infrastructure of AI? What is the relative importance of looking at preventing a fait accompli scenario? It is, this is a question about giving Congress the power to serve the interest of the American people about the right questions. And I see the budget, budget is this Congress's power, it's the power of the purse, is about helping Congress serve its role as this oversight board in you know, prioritizing the right questions. And that's not something that their disagreement with the department on those questions, I think would be a really healthy thing for our democracy. Yeah, definitely. Matt, did you want to jump in there? Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is I think, I think we're going to have to exceed the Appropriations Committee is a powerful committee in Congress. People, Congress people want to be on that because there is some control there. Unfortunately, within, you know, within Congress, and I think you've reported on this too, Eric, is there's not a lot of discretionary funding for congressional members. A lot of it is in mandatory spending. And so defense is one of the biggest pots. And so it is attractive to, to get money to districts to do, to do things that you think are important. There's a lot of reasons. But so I think we're going to have to accept that there's going to be some level of control that is always going to have to be kept at Congress. I think I would just like to flip the script a little bit in that instead of every single thing needing to be approved, that there is some veto power. If they, if the appropriation committee, authorization committees feel like DOD is going down a wrong track, pursuing things that are just not going to work out for whatever reason, they believe that they do need to have the power to say, no, I don't want you to do that. So I would just like to flip the script and make it more, give them some veto power, but not have to approve every single thing. I think it's a little bit more in line with this idea of permissionless innovation, but a strong filter of um, Courtney, you guys started with the congressional commission. What's your view here? 
Yeah, and I'll say I, I think I'm the fortunate one here. I get to carry the AI torch and and really bring it back to I think the the competition that we're facing. We 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 face a competitor in China that's organized, they're committed, and they're resourced to challenge us on the global stage and, and potentially upset our military technical superiority. And I think where that puts us is there's an imperative to to move fast. Here. We need to be deliberate, but we need to move fast. And so I think uh, I, I think my closing comments, Eric, would just be that partnership between the department and Congress is going to be essential here. Both are going to need to give a little and come to the table. That means, I think, first and foremost, defining better metrics that get to that get to value. And they're not going to be perfect. But the thing is, we need to start now and we need to deliberately measure. And if we don't feel like we are getting the insight we need to adapt. We need to embrace an iterative approach to, to trying to make reform happen, just like we have with software in modern technology development. But it is going to be that commitment to an ongoing dialogue and knowing that we may get things wrong in the near term, that's really gonna, I think, push us forward. And so I think the two key takeaways are measure deliberately and, and start now. Great. I think that was an amazing place to end there. We got uh, another great panel coming up at one. We'll have Jerry, who's going to host a, a panel with Dov Zakheim, former comptroller, Jamie Morin, former uh, D Cape, and uh, John Young, former USD ATNL. And they're going to talk about, hey, portfolio management. These three guys that we have here put out some really good ideas. But what's the path to implementation? What's the realism? And how do we get from here to there? So be sure to join us at one and we'll give you a couple of minutes break here. But thanks for joining us and looking forward to more discussions on this topic. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.